keeping in mind that there's no more curse is a, is a really beautiful promise. This is what will be one day. I'm not going to always be like this. I'm going to have I'm going to have actual freedom, not just from the curse of the law, not just from the consequences of sin, but I'm going to have actual freedom from sin one day. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys today? Excellent. Great, man. I tell you, I had a new updated 21st century version of the clergy stress stream the other night. I'm sure you've all had had the one where the service is about to start and you're not properly vested and you're running around trying to find X, Y, or Z. <laughs> I had one where I was in some church that I was unfamiliar with and having to try to figure out the sound system right before <laughs> the service. <laughs> Apparently, this is how my stress is manifesting itself now. Well, how did you always turn to, out? Well, you never get it solved before you wake up. Right? You, you, <laughs> yeah, you wake up like, yeah. like when the dreams where you're falling off a building, you wake up right before you hit the ground. Same thing. Yeah. So I always, that's my dream. But instead of doing the sound, I'm always like, I, I, I find out like three pages are missing in the middle of my sermon as uh-huh. I'm preaching it. And I can't, I, and then for the life of me, I have no zero idea what I said. So I'm just completely <laughs> blank. And I'm standing up there and people are laughing at me <laughs> just, and then I wake up. Well, yeah, I've actually had it happen where the person reading the, see, I leave my sermon on the lectern from the beginning of the service. So it's just there waiting for me. Yep. But the person reading the gospel uses the same lectern. And I think I've uh, actually had it where I don't think they actually walked back to the congregation with my sermon, but they started to pick it up. And I sort of had to like almost leap out to them and say, that part's mine, please. (laughs) (laughs) The dream for me is always about shoes. It's about like I'm somehow wearing sneakers and do I have time to get home to get the right shoes on before (laughs) church starts? And it's a a whole thing. And it becomes super important. It's the most important thing. Yeah, right. Do y'all have a – do you have to – do you only wear black shoes or do you wear – open-toed mandals or what <laughs> i wear brown shoes now i wear brown shoes i do not follow the and black a plastic collar i know this I'm is like, like it's like the first step towards becoming darth vader <laughs> first your hand <laughs> then your <laughs> i made sense in my mind more than it did You'll be happy to know the Irreverend podcast, guys. If anyone listens to our podcast, if they like it, they would like Irreverend also. They also are linen collar aficionados, so mm-hmm. I was happy to hear that. Um, well, no, I was sent home. Them, then. Well, I'd like to, um, just so you know. I, I was sent home <laughs> for my first uh, time ever officiating in Vienna when um, I didn't have socks on and I had brown bit loafers or just loafers on. And he was like, nope, <laughs> see, you, see you in 20 minutes. And I was so shamed and I was so um mortified i i keep a pair of black shoes in my car and in my office just in case i'm called to officiate at the last minute anywhere just in case <laughs> let the record show that i always have socks on that well <laughs> you live in the frigid north <laughs> and let the record show that we still worship in a school cafeteria who knows what the rules will be when we're in a sanctified space <laughs> 
Well, you guys, a couple weeks ago, a video made the rounds, a little video essay by a Northern Irish pastor named Jamie Bambrick about why the gospel-centered movement collapsed. And this movement, typified for Bambrick by the Gospel Coalition, Nine Marks, the Together for the Gospel Conference, and more, he says collapsed in essence because it didn't know what to do with God's law. Now, presented with a biblical text, which was teaching a way of life, gospel-centered pastors, he said, would preach about how that law shows us our sin, how Christ's atoning sacrifice reconciles us to a holy God, and basically say, amen, having preached the gospel. Now, his claim is that the gospel-centered movement never actually told Christians how to live their lives, that the biblical law was also offering practical advice, not just pointing out sin. And so when the culture started to go woke slash crazy, the gospel-centered movement didn't know what to do, hesitant as they were to preach God's law as something that a Christian was actually called to keep. So I think we've got a conversation on two fronts today. In a minute, I'd like to talk about preaching and about the use of the law of God for Christians. But let's start with Pembroke's assertion. What did you guys make of his explanation for the waning influence of the gospel-centered movement? I mean, I thought it was very strange. I thought, well, I remember I, I was I was following a lot of those preachers who are part of the Gospel Coalition all the way up until COVID and 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 through it. I I do remember very clearly guys like Matt Chandler and the "You're Not David," yeah. you know, the 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 and they're really going after what I considered the more charismatic. Uh, Pentecostal application of Old Testament texts into kind of hero narratives and look, David's a hero, you can be a hero too, kind of thing. And I and I thought that was they they were doing a good job. Yeah, you're not David. going after them because you're not you aren't <laughs> David, right, right? And so it was nice that they recaptured kind of the tip topology of the Old Testament and point pointing everyone to Christ, and and that, that's a that's a really good thing. But at the same time, I never noticed them not. Saying, "Hey, yeah, you should, you should, uh, you, you know, there's, there's this law against adultery, but hey, you know, no one can keep it, <laughs> so we're all right. going to cheat on our wives." And mm-hmm. and so here's the God. They that they didn't do that. I remember them being very clear about, yeah, Christians have responsibility to live in accordance with what God says. You're not going to do it perfectly, so yes, you have the gospel also. And in fact, the gospel is, you know. There's classically, I know our listener probably knows this, but there's the three uses of the law. There's the the law used to drive you to the cross because you know you can't follow it. There's a law that's that's used by the by the governing authorities to restrain the wickedness in a, in a society. And there's a law used as a guide, as a as a helpful guide for those who are justified. Um, and so they're, what they're saying is that is that the Gospel Coalition guys never use a third use that third the third category that I'm talking about. And I just I said notice that I thought it was I thought it was all wet. And in fact, I thought when COVID did come and you had the BLM riots and all of that, I thought the the reason the Gospel Coalition went astray is because they added not because they didn't go to God's law, because they started really being attracted to other laws like the BLM laws and the woke laws and, the, and, 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 and kind of transmogrifying them into being biblical laws. Uh, the MLK, MLK 50, I think it was when, when it sounded to me like a lot of those guys just swallowed hook, line and sinker, the BLM 
arguments about white privilege and 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 then and, and added the the woke idea of what you know white males should do to the biblical notion of justice. And, and this is where all of the redefinitions of love your neighbor enter the picture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean if I were to point to the to the Achilles tendon Achilles heel, I'm sorry, not tendon, heel for the <laughs> <laughs> for the gospel coalition, it would be it would be that they were they were trying really hard to be winsome. They're trying really hard to bring in people into the into the church. Uh, despite their wicked Calvinism, um, and, so, and so the way the way they thought to do that would be, you know, hey, let's echo some of the social justice stuff, and we can sat, and we can and we can bring people in, and they just followed that line too far and became so winsome their brains fell out, and that's not a good metaphor, but so winsome their their gospel fell out. I don't think it was I don't think it was inattention to the law. I think it was in, it was it was attention to the wrong laws and the attention to the wrong laws in pursuit of gaining traction in the culture well i i don't largely disagree with you except for i would just for point of information say that there are different understandings between lutherans well some lutherans and calvinists over the the relative uses of the law i just wanted to say that because i think there's there's an argument to me there's only two uses i think we um, can have a little bit of that conversation we now. can argue yeah let's let's have it well if you're going back to Luther himself, there's a there's a robust argument about whether or not he actually even taught it. Um, now, Lutheranism, later Lutheranism certainly has a categories like that. But the 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 language itself, I think, is unhelpful. Personally, having spent, um, well, a, a large part of my dissertation trying to figure out where the root of the conflict lies, uh, because the idea that you the idea that there's a like a third type, like let me put it this way. I was talking with someone the other day about this. The third use of the law, as the way you describe it, presupposes an a regenerate ability in the Christian, which I think is there, but nevertheless, I think overemphasizes the what the what our article would say the persistence of sin that doth remain in the believer, and what that what that what that uh, not in every case because I I know some people who believe in the third use of the law who well like you Matt who preach you know robust gospel every Sunday, but I also know people who believe in it who assume. Well, now that you're a Christian, then the only function of the law that is important to you is this sort of benign guide that you, well, you should know better, you know, and I think that in practice, I think, I think people try to avoid that in theory, but I think in practice, if you have the, that criteria, then it opens a door, it leaves an avenue open for our, our sort of, I'm going to say are the the least virtuous parts of us to particularly as preachers to become um, either manipulative and or contempt contemptuous um, because if you if you have an, an expectation for someone to to be better uh, then you understand the enabling word which is that they to a certain degree I don't want to say they're reconverted but there's an aspect of their unconverted or unbelieving heart that is confronted and um, resurrected each and every Sunday. You know, like, for instance, when I go to church, I don't wear a collar if I'm going on vacation because I don't want people to assume that I, um, you know, need to hear something different than, you know, the the guy that just wandered in for the first time in 30 years, even though, uh, practically speaking, I hope my life looks different than his. And so I think, I, I don't know, I'm, I, I got into the debate hard uh, for a long time, and I finally was freed from it a little bit by a quote from a guy named Gerhard Abeling, who said, you know, in all these debates about the uses of the law, people seem some people forget that the only one who actually uses the law is is the Holy Spirit. Like, you know, the preacher preaches the law, but the way that it actually 
affects itself in the hearts and minds of the hearer is through the power of the spirit. And so it convicts you or it's not the law, because theologically speaking, if you hear something as a promise, then it's no longer the law. You know, like thou shalt not steal is is either something very frightening for you or something very comforting. You know, you're not going to steal. You know, you're not going to have other gods. You're not. And I think if we're going with Paul theologically, then we have to think some other category than than putting that in the same theological category as that which also brings curse, you know, um, which is the which is the curse of the law. So I think so. I mean, I but I'm with you. I don't think I don't think there's well, let me back up to the original point. I think that they they did underemphasize what you would call the third use of the law. I, I believe they did what I would call just simply the hope of redemption in that they put on a well, let's take Romans seven as a perfect example. You know, Romans seven, uh, I do not understand what I do. The very thing I do is what I hate. I see within myself this war, you know, the whole sort of internal conflict. Well, that's either a place that you stay your the rest of your life, or it's a description of aspects of your life that you wrestle with. And nevertheless, you still find points and places of redemption, i.e. hope for, well, salvation, or it becomes this great, you know, it is what it is, like the great, um, you know, resignation in the sky. And I think that a lot of those gospel coalition type preachers uh, did preach the law uniformly without partiality so that we're all sinners, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I didn't think there was a lot of, of what's the next step. What I mean about that is in terms of like now what is the hope for redemption that you have within you? Because the way that this came forward was when all of the discussion about identities and sexual identities, you know, this is really the, the exposed the, the the weakness of this. When people started saying, well, I'm someone who struggles with, quote unquote, same sex desire or whatever. And well, then if you have the message as well we're all equally sinful and there's no ultimate hope for redemption. Well, then you got this whole, the, the people were just saying, well, that's the best you can hope for is this kind of persistent defeat by your internal desire, as opposed to um, at least something of the hope of redemption in particular on these culturally significant issues, like are these culturally sensitive issues that put you at odds with the, with the uh, zeitgeist. I, I think that's where the weakness was, was like, well, you know, who are we to say that, that you should repent of your sins. Like, who are we to say that you should, or that you could, you could lay down your identity because we're all, we're all just broken sinners. And I think that there was a weakness to that point, at least as far as I could tell. So maybe this is rubbing up against our differences in you know, perspective and background, but when you, when you use that term hope of redemption, it sounds like functionally it's still acting as a third use of the law. Cause you're still saying functionally, okay, now don't go, go commit adultery. Right. You, you, so if, if I'm talking to somebody who's cheating on their wife, right, I'm going to say, hey, look, the law says don't commit adultery. That should drive you to the cross for for forgiveness and 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 assurance that, that Jesus can can blot out that sin by his blood. And then now now that you're set free from the curse, right, now you can, you're free to stop sleeping with this other woman <laughs> out of love. Right, but it's not the law out of anymore. Love for Jesus That's right. And, well, well, wait a minute. Okay, now here's where I'd make a distinction. Right now, I'd say it's still law. It's just the curse is removed. Right? You're still, you're still. But see, the, the the thing that you're doing is you're loving Jesus at this point without the fear. I thought, I thought that was whole, Luther's whole point in the freedom of the Christian. Freedom of the Christian. Is it? Is it once? Is it once the, the the curse of the law is removed, then 
acting in love toward Jesus, which is the fulfillment of you love your loving God, right? That becomes an act of joy, not an act of fear, right? That, in fact, removing the curse of the law is the only thing that enables you to. That's right. Do the law out of love for God rather than out of fear of Him, right? That's right. But that then, that's point. But I would say that the problem is not is not in the in the way that you're describing that. It's in the the delineation of the three type of people. You know, you have like the the or the the three type of of applications because it's the same person and so i think that they're the, the same person that's freed from the law in a certain aspect of their lives is still under its accusation and others i mean that's why we confess every week the things done and left undone and so from my perspective it's not a question of how the law and gospel actually works because i think you described it perfectly and i think that that's actually what luther gets at in in the freedom of christian what i have a, a an issue with is the for lack of a better word, the systematizing of yeah. of the way it works in a in either a homiletic or a pedagogical way. Because if you begin to get down into, well, this type of person needs to hear this, and that type of person needs to hear this, and these type of people should should do that, then I think you've lost the actual power of the word proclaimed. And I think this is where you see the arguments within Lutheranism in particular have very little to do if you're talking about the the orthodox arguments, <laughs> very little to do with whether or not the law has a valid claim on on humanity you know i mean the the 10 commandments are are universal i mean like the 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 holy righteous law of god is something that um i mean that's what romans 1 and 2 is about right i mean the wrath of god is for the pagans and the judgment of god is going to be for the jews you know all for god shows no partiality it's funny just because you said the three uses it just triggered in me the the histories of debate because you know there was a time and nick and i both were in this where we would have you know bristled at even the prospect of the third use but that had to do a lot more with the way that it was being used and articulated i think than the way that it actually comes down or the way that it when, when you really hear people parse it out i mean you've had people like early 20th century German theologians trying to say thing like, you know, the divine command, you know, they didn't want to say third use. They wanted to say, you know, like gospel imperatives or something. It was just trying to get all around this uh, sort of distinction because you do have to take into account the fact that, you know, if the apostle Paul hadn't juxtaposed, you know, the curse of the law uh, with the, with the gospel, if he hadn't, if, if he hadn't highlighted that Christ was the end of the law, um, well, then we would have just seen Christ as a continuation of the law. And so Jesus wouldn't have been in distinction to the law. He just would have been a more perfect and beautiful version of it. And so I think that that's, that's the, the tension that you have to hold, because Luther himself said, you know, he used to think that Jesus was just the a greater Moses, you know, so Moses came with sort of the shadow of the law and Jesus came to fulfill and be the the height of it, which in a certain sense is true. But that height of the law is not for us to attain, but for us to be for it to be fulfilled in him. I mean, it's funny, I used to have a lot more energy about really debating the finer points of this, but um that was written and published and forgotten. But, but, <laughs> but, but the point of it, Matt, I think I do, I disagree. I mean, whether we call it gospel command or thirties doesn't matter. The, the point is, I think that they, they overemphasized the universality of, of the, of the sinfulness before the law to the degree that there was no way to then point out particular cultural sins that were more egregious or at least more uncomfortable to talk about, namely the sexual sense. You know, we had the turn of the 15th, uh, 15th uh, 2015 with Obergefell, you know, we had all of the um, discussion about, you know, homosexuality in public and you saw 
you saw a, um, you know, like you said before, a winsome kind of approach to that because I think they had been, the, the teeth had been, um, had been ground down, or at least the 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 argument had been um, eviscerated a little bit by that point. Because who am I to judge? You know, I mean, that's that's kind of the idea that came out. And I think, it, I, I just I I I I don't. I, I watched the, I mean, when they had these conferences, the, the the Gospel Coalition conference together for the gospel, all these kinds of things. I, I don't remember them being so clear about the actual gospel that they were not also clear about. The law, I mean, I, especially when it comes to sexuality, I, I, huh. they were very clear about homosexuality. Now they they've they've ceased to be as clear in many cases, but I think that's a result of of wokeness creeping in. I I, I and I think wokeness creeps in again not because they were ignoring the law, but because they latched onto different kinds of laws and melded them together with with uh, biblical law and tried to make one into the other like you know you have to love your neighbor by wearing a mask that's that uh that that seemed to me their attempt to to apply biblical law in a new case in a new way but it was totally wrong but that's that, that was their they were they were kind of doing what the pharisees do which we did which is you take a law and you and you say okay now this particular application of the law is the law that, we, that we've made up so I, again I, I just don't remember before 2019 before 2018 these guys being soft on anything really morally or ethically. I, I'm trying to get something in my head to, to have, maybe I'm the only one who didn't hear it, but I just did not hear that at all. Um, I'm basically so, with I, you, Matt. I, I, I think yeah. that his, I felt like Bambrick's critique might've been more appropriate to the way I preach than the way somebody like John MacArthur or John Piper preaches, where you really could have very, distinct sort of three section sermon where you have the proclamation of the law in its second use, let's say, to make the sinner see their need. Then you have the proclamation of the gospel to show them their savior. And then you have the application section, like how, how are you now going to go and yeah. live your life as this new redeemed creation? And, and of course, some of them, Sean Piper specifically, they go all the way to like lordship salvation. Like not only this is right, an right. this becomes an integral part of your final salvation, and that's really yeah. where my where I think that the talk about the third use of the law gets confused because you can call that the third use all you want, but it still feels to the sinner who leaves the church and lives their life that week as an accusation, and they need to come yeah. back, whatever you call it, and hear the good news again. Yeah, I mean, John Piper was hugely influential on these guys, and he and his his understanding of needing to have a passion for God, which will then fuel your, your passion for Christ, which will then fuel your sanctification, because you're gonna love Him so much, you're gonna love Him more than sin. That's 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 Piper's thing. And then, of course, you're right. The, the, the final justification: you're justified once when you come to faith, but then at the end at the end, you're judged on the on is this person's life consistent with justifying grace which i think is you know, we might as well go back and be roman at that point because because you've thrown over uh, but, but i don't I think, think that's right but in europe i mean i was this guy specifically talking about john piper i mean no, i wouldn't have no. put john piper in any of those categories but, but he so was a headline speaker together for the gospel like every year well yeah but yeah, I, but that's different than the gospel so we're getting some things confused because that guy was not he, talking about john piper like i would never have said that john piper was 
any of those things <laughs> that we were talking about. I, except I do disagree with him, like you were saying, Nick, about some of the some of the final applications. But um, I, but I think this think- guy's point that we're talking about, at least, he's he is saying, you know, whatever you want to say about the Gospel Coalition, he's saying that there was a movement of gospel centric pastors who were emphasizing the gospel to the extent that the the when they came when it came time to to just preach the law and whatever whatever uh use you want uh bring the law to bear on contemporary social issues in particular that because the emphasis had been on the gospel so much that they were either ill-equipped or unwilling or unable to to bring the law to bear on these these hot button issues i think that was the point about the gospel centric stuff not that not that together for the gospel necessarily was, you know, monolithically a problem, but I do think that there was a there was an extension. It was a little bit like Tim Keller's ministry. You know, Tim Keller himself, to his dying breath, you know, was very solid. And um, you know, that final thing that the, he helped write for the PCA about men and women, and um, you know, his statements were 100% orthodox. And I don't think he, um, you know, even though he had some his his techniques, you know, his his students or the people who learned from him, many of them became part of the 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 silent winsome majority you know for lack of a better word that was that were able unable to or unwilling to speak clearly and boldly um, which has been part of this ongoing discussion of his legacy now i think he himself is not to blame for that directly i mean he he spoke very boldly and very clearly um you know his entire his entire ministry in many in many ways um but i think similarly speaking you have a whole generation of people that were that were discipled by these this movement who have gone silent. I think that's the point. They're not as prevalent as they were. Um, and I think this guy, at least the video that you're talking about, his question was, where are they? You know, they were the ones who um, were, you know, packing out the, the stadiums when with people like John Piper, who were taking a stand and with people like John MacArthur, who were taking the stand. And then you saw COVID come and you saw sort of a burger fell and all these things. And, and there was this great sort of I don't know. The The silence was deafening. You know what? I, I think I might have a nice little simple sentence summary here. I think that what he's arguing in that video is that it was also gospel centric, quote unquote, and personal salvation centric that what what was a gospel issue became just that, like your sin and your salvation from it. And so they were able to then say when these social issues arose, well, that's not a gospel issue. And so they could they could to themselves set it aside. That's I think that's what he says in the video. Yeah, but I mean I think he's wrong. So the <laughs> connection between John Piper and not the founders of the Gospel Coalition, but many of those who later made their way into it, um, is the unrestless and reform movement. And and John Piper is what is I mean, everyone think everyone knows he's like foundational to that whole movement. So a lot of these guys are, yeah, they do the Gospel Coalition together for the gospel. All, they're these are organizations that have a lot of intermarriage uh, between them. So so yeah, I mean, I know Piper, I would not say Piper is periphery in the same way that John MacArthur is. I mean, John MacArthur is a little more periphery to the Young Restless Reform, to Gospel Coalition, to the others than, than he is than Piper is. But the uh, I I think that. The reason they stopped packing out, I, I, you could probably, I think you can probably date it. They stopped packing out stadiums and, and getting sold out conferences. I think pretty close to MLK fifty. I think that's when that's when they that's when they lost. That's when they jumped the shark. And, and it was because they kept saying, and they still do say, 
this is a gospel issue. I, I mean, I, I disagree with you, Nick. I don't think they said mm-hmm. this is not a gospel issue. I think they said this is a gospel issue too many times so that everything became about the gospel. And not and not just not just the mistake of sometimes melding law and gospel, but saying, "Hey, BLM, or us 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 being us giving up our privilege is about the gospel. Us mm. us being sensitive and winsome in our language is about the gospel. Everything became about the gospel. There's even memes out there because these guys mm. <laughs> began to say to merge together the gospel with social justice and social action." I don't know. I, so I think we did. I, I think I we did think... a podcast on that yeah. back when it came out. I think we yeah. did. I think we talked about that. So what? So what is yeah. his? I mean, maybe I didn't watch the video close enough. So what is his argument? I mean, I don't know if I'm. <laughs> maybe I watched. He's saying that they, they were so focused on the gospel and they didn't have any kind of law. So they, you, you, you go through a text like the Sermon on the Mount. I think Nick was saying this in the, in the beginning, and instead of saying, you know, hey, don't commit adultery, right, to Christians. They just use all the all the law in the Sermon on the Mount to drive you to the cross and then leave it at that. But that's still so, I, I mean, I've been I've I've had to answer this question in my own preaching many times over the years. That's still a proclamation of the law that can be yep. heard by a Christian as authoritative and exhortative in their own life. Yes, do not commit adultery. That that stands as proclaimed, whatever use you want to and as Shady was saying earlier, different people people at different stages in their walk with Christ will hear that in a different quote unquote use because the Holy Spirit is the one using it. And then, yeah, he even addressed that in the video, didn't he? He said, like, he said he he was part of his criticism was that they let these preachers, he said, let uh, the Holy Spirit sort out how the law was going to be applied to every heart rather than actually giving the instruction of the text. So, yeah, I mean, you even said that. Is that okay. exactly what you're saying? If I remember, if I remember correctly. So um, why don't you, both of you, if <laughs> assuming that they're different, give me the the two or three point sermon outline on anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery with her already. Like, how do you yeah. preach that text? In, in answering that question, one thing I do agree about in the video is I think that. It seems. Uh, I'm sorry. I disagree with about that video. Is that it seems like a lot of this, his his criticism is coming from. Well, there's not an action point, right? So the people need to go away from the sermon having something to do, and that's that's like a classic thing that people were taught in seminaries, like from 80s and 90s. If you do, if you send your people home without something to do, then man, they're they're, they're you're really cheap, giving your your parishioners a cheap, you know, cheap gospel. Mm-hmm. I think that's all wet. So, I mean, I, if, I, if I'm preaching on adultery in, from the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to exegete the passage, make sure, make it very clear in everyone's head what, what adultery is, how you can commit it without actually using your body in any way, how why it's so offensive to God, how it corrupts and destroys the picture of Christ in his church, because your, mar- your marriage is a picture of Christ in his church. And then I would actually end with the gospel, because I, I, think, I think if you're really heavy with the law— up front, then you have the gospel. I mean, I think every, I think you're right, Nick. That that if you spend a lot of time really explaining what it is that God calls us to do, I think the Holy Spirit does say, "Okay, well, you need to stop doing that." Or you, it, it, right. you, their, their conviction is brought down on the right people in the right ways, and then you then you just you end with the comfort of of the cross. You don't end with, "And now go do this." You you end with, "This has been done for you." 
Yeah. I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I don't, I don't think there's any, I mean, I think there are other ways to preach it. I mean, I think you could have, you know, 10, um, I mean, incorrectly, you know, you can leave them with 10 <laughs> steps towards, sure. um, you know, avoiding <laughs> adulterous thoughts or whatever, which, you know, still doesn't get at the root of the problem, which I think was Jesus's point in the first place was that, right. you know, the heart is deceitful above all things, says Jeremiah. And so this is your problem. But I do think sort of the classic homiletical technique is to do exactly what you said, uh, Matt. I mean, lay out the 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 law, the the uses, the civil and the moral, you know, and say this is this is why God would say these things, you know, for X, Y, and Z reasons. You know, this is why it harms yourself, harms him, harms, you know, all of the things. And yet he is the just and justifier of the ungodly. So repent and believe. And, you know, and I think that's where um, you know, again, I'm not I'm not sure what sort of, you know, specific application that particular verse has other than then don't do it. You know, I mean, well, like, you this could, seems there, to be I mean, the case. There's, like, there's, you know, whole, I mean, there's... there's a whole corpus of every man's burden, which suggests that when you're driving down the road and you see a female jogger on the side of the road, you only look at her out of the corner of your eye. Like there are, <laughs> there are ridiculous, but specific action steps you could take as the third leg of your three-step sermon now that you've preached the law to bring people to their knees introduce them to their savior and now that they have some new ability including to only lust when they look directly at something and not out of the corner of their eye um, which is an (laughs) ability that i do not possess but the problem the the thing about the uses is that a preacher who knows his people or who knows people in general or who knows himself should know that whatever those action steps are in the third part of the sermon will serve over the course of the week to drive the people back to their knees, no matter how you couched them. They will continue to reveal sin and continue to make the need for a savior all the more apparent. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the people that dismiss the idea that the Sermon on the Mount is is at least a means of elevating the law to an impossible pitch, I think are are wrong. I think that if you're preaching the Sermon on the Mount as a as a picture of the the possible kingdom to come if and when you do X, Y, and Z, I think they're wrong if they do that. But at the same time, if they're not pitching the law itself as a as an aspirational mm-hmm. um transformational hope, well then they're wrong also. Right. And I it's think good that's, and that's holy, the not bad. That's right. That's right. And I think, and I resemble this remark. I have, I have, you know, I mean, I have learned, um, been taught things in my life. Uh, and this is one of those that I think I very easily, I probably early in my ministry, thankfully wasn't preaching as much, um, but was, was sort of in resigned in this council of despair sort of mindset. You know, I certainly believed in the law. I, I knew it, it right was a righteous judge of my life. And I basically just clung to the gospel, but with very little of the hope of actually being elevated above my conviction level, for lack of a better word. You know, and then um, then you get married, or at least in my case, you get married and you start seeing the effects of your sin actually rant, hurt someone else or at least inconvenience someone else's life in a way that you begin to start getting convicted about. And then, you know, then you have more responsibility and then you have children or at least in my case. And 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 all of a sudden you start beginning to pray, Lord, I understand that um, this side of heaven sin will remain and I, I'm grateful for your cross and I will throw myself on your mercies every hour. But could I 
could could you please help me throw myself a little less frequently or a little less dramatically? <laughs> you know, that, or you help know, the and throwing I, cause me to be redeemed in this life. That's right. And I think that's that's been a um, you know, that has that has affected my eschatology, that's affected my own my own preaching, that's affected my own hope, and for lack of a better word. And I'm grateful for that, you know. And it doesn't mean that I think that somehow now I I just approach the law as a disinterested sort of sanctified observer who can start, um, you know, applying it to my life like like a self-help book or something. But it does mean that there is an aspect to the thou shalt not commit adultery, for instance, that's a promise and a hopeful promise as opposed to just a condemnation of my, you know, um, irrepressibly sinful heart. Because it says, well, you know, God has um, given you his spirit and he has promised not by my but by my uh, spirit. And he says, um you won't do this. And so you, you know, it's not like claiming a promise, but you do, you do stand on the promises and you say, Lord, um, you know, let this be so, you know, let this be so. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to murder, you know, Jesus says, if you think of your brother with enmity, you've murdered him. Like, I don't want to be an unrestrainedly covetous and envious and jealous. Like these are miserable places to live. And so Lord deliver me, you know, and I think that's the use of the law, whatever you want to call it um, in the life of the believer that allows for honest self-assessment, but also genuine heartfelt prayer um, and repentance for that matter, you know? And I think that's where, um, you know, hopefully that's what we're leading our people in when we preach and teach. And I think, um, you know, whatever use of the law, we want to call any of that, um, it will do its work if we're just faithful to preach both the the heights of it, the fact that there is, it stops every mouth, and yet Jesus has come to save sinners. Yeah, I mean, I, I I like that, and I think this morning we had morning prayer, everyone prayer every day by Zoom for like Good Shepherd, and someone asked the question, "What does it mean to have the law of God written on your heart?" And there's there's two ways that that, that phrase is used. It's used in Romans one to talk about, or Romans two to talk about, just everybody in the world has, in some sense, knowledge of God's law, even if they don't have the scriptures. They know what's right and wrong. They have basic moral sense. But in a second. Um, for the Christian, what it like when Jeremiah thirty and Jeremiah thirty one, when we're told is going to be everyone is going to know the Lord, and He's going to write His law in our hearts. There's something much much more relational there that's in that's in in view, and and that is that you're going to love God is going to impart His love into your heart by the Holy Spirit, so that uh, you so love Him you really hate. The things you do, like Romans seven, you really despise the, the when you see in your own heart, your own mind, your own soul, uh, a love for, for disobedience. You hate that love, and you and you want God to you you hunger and thirst. I like that I, you mentioned earlier the hope of redemption. You hunger and thirst for this redemption that you know is coming, um, but you also know it is not yet totally. Um, so in in that sense, this uh, the the law as it's written on our heart is keeping in mind that there's no more curse is a, is a really beautiful promise, right? You have this, this is what will be one day. I'm not going to always be like this. I'm going to have, I'm going to have actual freedom, not just from the curse of the law, not just from the consequences of sin, but I'm going to have actual freedom from sin one day. And it's, it's really amazing to think about that. How much of our lives are just so enmeshed in sin like it's hard to even imagine it but it, it's something that every christian i think longs for even if you don't know you do you do and so come lord jesus and bring it soon Amen.
Well, that's going to be all the time that we have today. Thanks for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. Or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh